Baptist Church in Roswell, New Mexico, and he'll be teaching on definite atonement. Good afternoon. It is good to be with you all and to be considering these great truths. Um, like Howard said, we're from New Mexico, and I serve at Mountain View Baptist Church in Roswell, New Mexico, which is, of course, famous for aliens and UFOs, but we are from this earth, I promise you. Um, we're so glad to be with you. We actually are from the north ourselves. I grew up in Minnesota, and, uh, and my wife grew up in Montana, and, and so we actually uh, would spend uh, years and times driving from Montana through the great state of North Dakota on the way back to Minnesota to see my family and back and forth, and uh, Bismarck was often a pit stop. It was kind of the middle spot between Billings, Montana and Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, uh, But even more importantly, it is so good to know that there's other brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and his word and treasure the doctrines of grace. And so it really is a privilege and honor to be considering these great truths with you. And I thank you for inviting me and letting me participate in this time. I have the task of addressing definite atonement. And so that's what we're going to turn to now of the doctrines of grace and consider. Um, and I want to do that first by reading a passage from Isaiah 53 and John chapter 10. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to both those places. You could just put a finger in both of them. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6, and then uh, a few words of Christ from John 10, verses 14 and 15. Let me read those by way of introduction, and then ask for God's blessing and help in prayer. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 1 through 6. This is the very word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as was from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then the Gospel of John, chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 14 and 15. There the Lord Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your holy word. Thank you again for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And Lord, we thank you for the cross, the fountain from which your grace flows to us. We haven't earned it or merited it and don't deserve it. It is because Christ died for us, whom you chose before the foundation of the world, that your grace comes to us. And so we thank you for the cross. Thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we consider now his sacrifice and the atoning work of Christ for the elect, Lord, would you open our eyes once again to survey the wondrous cross. Help us to see the wonder and the glory of Christ and him crucified, and that you should do that for us in and through his sacrifice. Glorify Christ now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, outside of the return of Christ at the end of human history, no doubt the most important event in human history is the death of Jesus Christ. For on that day, God the Son in human flesh following a life of perfect obedience, laid down that life on the cross as a sacrifice and as a substitute for sinners. And in doing so, he made atonement. That is, he bore the penalty, judgment, and wrath our sins require that God might be both just and the justifier of the one whose faith is in Jesus. In part, it's because this is just such a remarkable event, the the sacrifice, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, Um, why I begin by reading some from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is, is one of those passages, one of the most familiar and powerful passages addressing Christ's sacrifice, written 700 years before Christ took on a human flesh and lived and died. And it so beautifully describes the atonement. And yet by his atoning sacrifice, there are some questions, nevertheless, that remain. Like, for example, did Christ make salvation possible and available to anyone and everyone who believe? Did he merely do that? Die to make salvation possible and available to anyone who would believe? Or... Did he effectively accomplish and secure salvation? And and if he did, if we say, yes, Christ on the cross accomplished redemption and secured salvation, then the question is, who did he do that for? Did he do so for everyone or for some? Well, this is what we turn now to address in considering the doctrine of definite atonement sometimes known as well as limited atonement or particular redemption. And of all the doctrines of grace, this one is often the most difficult for people. 
and it's often the most controversial. Well, what do you mean that Christ didn't die for everyone, or Christ died for those whom he chose? Like dominoes, though, and it's been said before by the men bef- uh, before me, uh, this doctrine, like all the others, naturally follows um, radical depravity and unconditional election. And if we see and understand those things in Scripture, the doctrine of definite atonement makes sense. And I don't think it just makes sense logically. It's also revealed to us in Scripture. It's also biblical. And in a nutshell, the doctrine of definite atonement is this. That while sufficient to save anyone... Christ's death effectively atoned for the sins of those whom God had unconditionally chosen to save before the foundations of the world, thus accomplishing and securing their salvation. Let me say that one more time. While sufficient to save anyone, Christ's death effectively atoned for the sins of the elect in particular, thus accomplishing and securing their salvation. Ultimately, therefore, the atonement was definite in that Christ died specifically for those given to him by the Father on the basis of grace. And I want to unpack that under two headings. First of all, the nature of the atonement, and then second of all, the extent of the atonement. And those will be our two main points. First of all, then, consider with me the nature or the effectiveness of the atonement. Now, to better understand definite atonement... I think it helps, actually, first to understand the nature of the atonement and what it is it actually accomplished, because that's really the heart of the question. And to better understand that, it helps to consider the opposing view known as unlimited or universal atonement. This was the view that was held by the disciples of Jacobus Arminius, In the early 1600s, late 1500s, early 1600s, disciples of um, Jacobus or Jacob, Arminius, were known as the Remonstrants. And in the years following the Reformation, it's these individuals who argued that Christ died um, for the salvation of all men universally, universally. So in response to what the Reformed were saying, these men said, no, no, we believe that Christ died for the salvation of all men universally, not for a definite or particular category of people, but Christ died in the same way for all men, and he died for all men universally. Now, this doesn't mean that they believe that all men would be saved, rather that Christ's death merely made salvation possible and available for all men. Christ died on the cross for all men, they argued, and making salvation possible and available for all men. Whether or not it was effective then was determined not by God, but by man's free choice. And that's really the, the, the dominant view today, is it not? Right? That Christ, Christ died for all men in the same way, all men everywhere, and his death merely makes salvation available and possible. And then it's up to you, and it's up to me, and it's up to individuals to, to avail themselves of Christ's work, um, not by the 
power of God at work in their hearts, but by their own free choice. So again, this is the dominant view of the atonement today, a, a unlimited or universal view of the atonement. However, if Christ died for all men universally, and yet not all men are saved, which most evangelicals would, would grant, then this means that, that Christ didn't actually accomplish redemption at the cross, did he? He did not actually ensure any man's salvation. He only made man savable. There's a huge difference there to say that Christ actually accomplished salvation versus merely making men savable, able to be saved. Theoretically, according to this view, by the way, put theoretically, Christ could have died and no one be saved, right? Theoretically, he could die to make men savable, but then no one of their own free choice avail themselves. And, and as we even consider with radical depravity, in light of what the Bible teaches about human nature, we should suppose that in that scenario, nobody would be saved, right? Because no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me, Christ said, draws him. And so ironically, this view of, of the alternative view of unlimited or universal atonement, ironically, it actually limits the effect or the power of the atonement. You see, this is very important. What that teaches us is that except for true universalists who says everyone in the end will be saved, except for them, everyone limits the, the atonement in one way or another. Right? You either limit it in its extent, as I will argue we ought to in light of Scripture, and that's what definite atonement would teach, that Christ died for a definite group of people, or you have to limit it in its power or its efficacy and say that Christ's death is limited in its power and that it did not actually accomplish or secure salvation for anyone. As one author says, um, a Presbyterian brother, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Grace Defined and Defended, writes, While the Reformed famously limited the extent of the atonement, the Arminians limited the nature of the atonement. Christ's death became the means of removing original sin and gather, granting men the provenient grace necessary to believe. In order to defend the notion that Christ died for all men and for every man, the remonstrance... Um, the, the disciples of Jacobus Arminius, championed a, an atonement that allowed for the potential salvation of everyone, but actually secured the salvation of none. Well, before evaluating this view further by considering the nature of the atonement more closely in Scripture, uh, I want to affirm up front that Christ's death is indeed sufficient to save anyone and everyone who believes. And we should remain confident of that at all times. Hold to the doctrines of grace firmly while being confident that, that in no way does that compromise this truth. That Christ's death is sufficient, is able to save anyone and everyone who looks to Christ and Christ alone in repentance in faith. In fact, this was something that those who defended it Definite atonement also affirmed in response to the remonstrance and something they expressed in the Canons of Dort. So if you're not familiar, the Canons of Dort was that uh, confession, that doctrine, uh, a statement that the Reformed drew up in response to the Arminians in which they expressed what they believed. And, and those who defended definite atonement said this. They said, for example, in, under their second heading, 
the infinite value of Christ's death. They said, quote, the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. This death is of such infinite value and dignity because the person who submitted to it was not only really man and perfectly holy, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, which qualifications were necessary to constitute Him a Savior for us. And moreover, because it was attended with a sense of the wrath and curse of God due to us for our sin. They go on and say, moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. Dear friends, we can and should therefore proclaim the gospel to every creature under heaven, declaring without reservation that Christ came into the world to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and that whoever believes on him will not perish but have ever, everlasting life. I believe this is, in fact, how many of the familiar passages that people cite in objection to definite atonement um, should be understa- understood. Um, some of those passages you know and are familiar with, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, which says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Or one last example, 1 John 2, 2, where The Apostle John says, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as those who see and recognize the doctrines of grace in Scripture, we we look at these verses and and we need to look at these verses and say, what what does Scripture mean in saying these things? And I I think uh, we don't have the time to look at each of them or others more closely, but but in general, these passages reveal a couple of things. They reveal the breadth of God's love for this sinful fallen world in general, a love that extends to all kinds of people, including Gentiles, like most of us in this room, and thank God that it does. However, these passages can't mean that Christ died to effectually atone for everyone in the world any more than Caesar's decree that all the world be registered uh, should include people in Siberia, South America, or Far East Asia. Dear friends, Jesus then is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist declared. Not in that he died for everyone without exception, in which case we might wonder, how how can people still perish if Christ legitimately died for everyone without exception? No, to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world means not that he died for everyone without exception, but that he died for everyone without distinction, all kinds of people right? Men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, red, yellow, black and white. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of all stripes and kinds, of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And again, this reveals the breadth of God's love for this sinful and fallen world in general. Furthermore, these passages 
dear friends, reveal the biblical basis for the free offer of the gospel. For God is, indeed is calling all men everywhere to repent, such that we can confidently say that whoever believes on Christ will be saved. However, is that the most we can say? That Christ's death was sufficient, making salvation available to anyone on the condition of faith? Or was it also efficient, actually making atonement for a particular people? Well, in considering that question, listen to the language of Scripture. Passages, no doubt, you have heard, but, but maybe you have not thought the significance and the depth of what it's saying. Listen, listen to the language in, in different passages of Scripture, starting right here in Isaiah 53. Note, for example, in this beautiful and familiar passage in which Isaiah the prophet is foretelling of the sacrifice of Christ, how he speaks of the atonement. He says in verse 4 that he actually bore our griefs and our sorrows. He says in verse 5 that he was pierced, not for his own sins or transgressions, but for ours, and that, note this part at the end of verse 5, that the chastisement that was upon him, it actually brought us peace. By his wounds, the prophet says, we are healed. Dear friends, this language communicates the effectiveness of the atonement. Christ did not merely die to make your healing uh, possible. He died to heal right. you and to save you, whom he has, on whom he has set his love and chosen to save on the basis of grace before the foundation of the world. The atonement, the point is this, is clearly effective. We see that in other passages throughout Scripture, which indicate that by his death, Jesus actually atoned for sin, effectively redeeming people. Consider, for example, these examples. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then, echoing Isaiah, he says, by his wounds, you are potentially healed. No, <laughs> by his wounds, you have been healed. Or Hebrews 9.14, I love this, this example. The author of Hebrews says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One last example, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. There in glory, it says that the lamb is being worshipped, and, and they say of him, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Dear friends, these Verses show that Christ's death was effectual. It actually redeemed people from the curse of, law, of the law. It actually healed them, perfected them, and so forth, ransomed them. Which, of course, isn't true of everyone. One might object by saying, well, that's because not everybody believes. Uh, but we must recognize, as even Pastor Bruce uh, indicated in, in his session previously in the last hour that faith itself is a gift of God. That 
flows to us um, from election and regeneration. Faith itself, therefore, is a gift of God bought by the precious blood of Christ and part of the promise of the new covenant. You remember that promise in the Old Testament scriptures where the Lord said in his covenant people, I will give them a new heart. I will give them a new spirit and they'll turn to me. I'll write my law in their hearts. They'll love me. They'll fear me. They'll obey me. This then, faith itself, is part of the promise of the new covenant and a gift of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say in the New Testament to the believers in Philippi, Philippians 1.29, it's been given to you or granted to you to believe as well as to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's been given to you. You, you see, the, the point is this, is that faith itself, uh, while a man must believe on Christ to be saved, and while no one is personally justified before the atonement is applied to their heart by the Spirit effectually, nevertheless, the That's not the point. The point is, did Christ at the cross actually atone for people's sin and redeem them and save them and secure their salvation, or did it only make it possible? Did Christ mean what he said when he said, it is finished? Or is there something else that must be done to accomplish redemption? This is the heart of the matter. For listen, if Christ died for everyone in general, and yet everyone is not saved, then Christ's death didn't actually accomplish redemption. It only made it possible, and in the end, in that scenario, many for whom Christ died will perish. In that scenario, Christ died for Judas, who would end up perishing. However, if Christ's death truly made satisfaction for sin, propitiated the Father, and redeemed people for God, as Scripture indicates, then Christ accomplished redemption by his death, and he will undoubtedly save everyone for whom he died. The differences between these two views, the view of universal or unlimited atonement and definite atonement, could be illustrated by two different bridges. One bridge is very wide, and yet it only goes halfway across the canyon. Whereas the view of definite atonement says, no, the the atoning work of Christ is like a bridge that is more narrow, but it goes all the way to the, the other side. It reaches the other side. It accomplished redemption for those for whom it was intended. As the great Charles Spurgeon said, whoever says anything better than Charles Spurgeon, quote, in a sermon on this subject, he preaches and says, we cannot belay our reason as to think that the intention of the Almighty God could be frustrated or that the design of so great a thing as the atonement can by any way whatever be missed of. We hold that Christ came into the world with the intention of saving a multitude that no man can number. And we believe that as the result of this, every person for whom he died must, beyond the shadow of a doubt, be cleansed from sin and stand washed in his blood before the Father's throne. That's my kind of redemption. That's what I see in Scripture as I consider the death of Christ. That did not accomplish a mere potential possible salvation. It actually accomplished it. Redemption for those whom it was intended such that they will all be saved. As Stephen Lawson says, quote, not a drop of Jesus' blood was shed in vain. 
he truly saved all for whom he died. That's the nature of the atonement. It, it is effective as we see. Christ by his death actually accomplished redemption for those whom he died. Which leads us to the second heading, which is the extent of the atonement. The implication of all this is that Christ therefore died to say in a unique sense for a particular people to save them. Not on the basis of their foreseen faith, since faith is a gift of God and the fruit of election and regeneration, but on the basis of God's gracious choice. In other words, the extent of the atonement was definite by divine design. That all those whom the Father predestined, as we saw in Romans 8 in the last hour, would also be called, justified, and ultimately glorified on the basis of the Son's sacrifice. Those who defended the doctrine of definite atonement went on to say this in the canons of Dort, arguing, quote, This was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect, for bestowing upon them the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly, infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God, that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to them by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. Well, listen again, most importantly, to the language of Scripture itself where we see that. Starting once again in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. For example, though Isaiah says in the very next verse, verse 6, Isaiah 53, 6, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, which might lead us to say, okay, that's all the world. That's every person without exception. He nevertheless notices a few verses later, he indicates that he is referring to everyone in a particular group since he speaks of the servant as suffering for, quote, my people, which I take to be believing Israelites or believing Jews. And the servant suffering not for all, but for the many, which actually based on what he said earlier at the end of Isaiah 53, I take to refer to the, the many among the nations, the Gentile nations, since at the end of Isaiah 52, um, verse 15, he speaks of Christ sprinkling many nations. Note this in Isaiah 53, he goes on and says, for example, in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he, that is the suffering servant, was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out, uh, out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people. And then dropping down further to verse 11, he says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, or the great, your translation might say, 
Hebrew word can be translated either way there. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here we see that the all is referring to everyone in a particular group. The many for whom he actually bore their iniquities. Jesus, of course, is echoing this very language in the New Testament when, when he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to uh, serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. Or uh, when establishing the Lord's Supper, says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins, Matthew 26, 28. Here's the point then. The point is then that the all, even in Isaiah 53, is referring to everyone in a particular group. And this phenomenon, this dynamic, actually appears elsewhere in Scripture. We uh, probably don't have the time to look at it right now, but you could turn to Romans chapter 8 on your own time. It's actually in that, that very same passage that Pastor Bruce referenced. He said, if God is for us, who shall be against us? Well, the question is, who is the us that God is for? He goes on and says that um, Christ, if, if he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Well, who is the all? The all is all of the elect. For the apostle Paul himself goes on and says, who is to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies and goes on and says that Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Well, even here, the, the us all for whom Christ gave or whom the Father gave up his Son is all of the elect, all those whom he predestined, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and will glorify. And we know this because even Christ himself says he intercedes not for the world, but for his people. He says to the Father in John 17, 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's even more explicitly stated that Christ laid down his life to save and to cleanse and ultimately glorify a particular people. Here are just a couple examples. Matthew 1, 21. The angel appears to Joseph and says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Or John 10, uh, which I begun by reading. John 10, verse 11, as well as verse 14 and 15. Jesus there says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And one last example, Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 27, probably the most uh, beautiful or tender of examples. Uh, There the Apostle Paul charges husbands saying, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Dear friends, I don't know most of the ladies in this room, but as a brother in Christ as a, and as a Christian man, I, I can say I, I love you as a Christian man and as a brother in Christ. And yet I have a special love for one woman in particular back there. She is specially loved by me in a way that I don't love any other women. My, uh, as much as there might be a genuine care and love for other women, I love my wife in a unique and special way. And as we see here from Ephesians 5, so it is with Christ. That he loved his bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church, such that he gave himself up for her. That she might be cleansed and washed and made holy and ultimately presented before him uh, pure and, and glory. Just as a man loves his wife, his bride, in a unique and special way. So Christ has a unique and special love for his bride, the church. And so, whereas I think we can affirm there is an incredible, amazing love that God has for his created world in general, and those fallen sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who are created in his image. He loves them. He cares for them, yes. But there's a people whom he has chosen whom he has set his love upon, as we even learned in the last hour. That's what the word foreknown is all about, whom he has set his affections upon before the foundations of the world. There's a people on whom he has loved in that way in particular, and that is his bride, the church, the elect, consisting of all those whom the Father has given to him and all those whom the Spirit would draw to him. And dear friends, it is this love that led Christ to lay down his life effectively, specially, and particularly for her. It is as we often sing in that great hymn, right? The church is one foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. You see, far from limiting or diminishing the love and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ, definite atonement then actually magnifies it. For it demonstrates the special saving love of God in Christ towards those whom he has chosen. Not because of their own worthiness or righteousness or foreseen faith, but because of his unmerited grace. Again, quoting from Devin, Kevin DeYoung in his book, Grace Defined and Defended, quote, the point of this definite atonement is not to truncate the mercy of God, but to celebrate that Christ effectively and savingly died for his particular people. I hope you see that and feel that. As you consider Definite atonement. It's not, it's not the doctrine of grace that you need to be embarrassed about. No, you can, you can hold to that and proclaim that, that God 
loves his people in this special way such that he sent Christ to die effectively and savingly for them. Just as a man fixes his gaze on a woman and pursues her and lays down whatever he can to make her his own and make her his bride, so Christ has done that for his chosen people. By way of application then, beloved, if you are trusting and following Christ, understand that this means actually that Christ died for you. Not in a general or generic way like he died for Judas and everyone else in this world. No. If you're trusting and following Christ, understand that this means that Christ died for you in a unique and special way. He died for you in particular, to redeem you and to rescue you. It means that he loved you and laid his life down for you, especially and particularly. This is why the Apostle Paul can speak of Christ in Galatians 2.20 as the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He can say that because of definite atonement, because he understood that God the Father sent Christ the Son to die for him, to rescue him, and that Christ loved him in a unique and particular way as as one who had been chosen by God on the basis of grace. May you understand that, therefore, that Christ died for you and loved you and laid down his life for you in particular, if you're a believer, and may this provoke you to worship. As the old um, Scottish Uh, Protestant Robert Murray McShane said a couple hundred years ago, quote, adore Jesus that he passed by millions and died for you. If you believe you are a Christian and are seeking to trust and follow Jesus, but you doubt God's love for you and wonder if you're elect, may this encourage you to look to and rest in the perfect and finished work of Christ. Look to the love of God displayed to us in the cross. This is how God has most manifestly demonstrated his love, that he's slayed his son for my sins, right? God demonstrated his love in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you want to know the love of God or lack assurance of God's love towards you and wonder, where am I at with the Lord? Am I chosen by the Lord? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to the strength of your own faith or certainly not your own merit, but look to the perfect and finished work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ through which God's grace comes to us and the basis on which God's grace comes to us. For listen, the work is done. And as scripture says, Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Rest in his finished and perfect work. Finally, if you believe you're a Christian, but you're not trusting and following Christ, or if you know you're not a Christian this morning, understand that this doctrine is your only grounds for hope. You see, it's because Christ came into the world to save sinners and actually accomplished that at the cross that you can be assured that if you turn to him in repentance and faith, he will save you too. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, thank you again for your word. And thank you for the wonder of the cross. Thank you that Christ died for us 
whom you chose before the foundation of the world on the basis of grace. Thank you that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so as we consider to explore these great truths, would you do do so in our hearts while keeping our eyes on Christ, the atoning and perfect and finished work of Christ, that we might glory and rest in his work and know your love towards us demonstrated in and through the cross and the definite atonement of Christ. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, well, now we'll take a 10-minute break and then come back to uh, hear sermon on efficacious grace, amen? But if you want to get up and stretch your legs in that for 10 minutes,